Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today, we've got the story of Private First Class Noah Knight. Private First Class Knight was serving with F Company, part of the 7th Infantry Regiment, rolled up under the 3rd Infantry Division during the Korean War. And for actions on November 23 and 24 of 1951, Private First Class Knight would be awarded the Medal of Honor. We haven't talked about the Korean War yet, so I'm going to back up a little bit and, and dive into some high-level things that make it a little bit different than some of the other conflicts we've spent time discussing. But for starters, how about the fact that it hasn't ended? North and South Korea are still at war. What was signed in 1953 at the end of what we call the Korean War, I think the actual correct terminology is to call it a Korean conflict. But at the end of that conflict in 1953, we signed an armistice. North and South Korea signed an armistice. An armistice is a temporary truce. It means that we're not going to fight right now, but it doesn't resolve the reason that a war broke out in the first place. You know, wars happen because there's something that's trying to be resolved. And right or wrong, they're trying something is trying to be decided. And the idea is that warfare is going to resolve that in favor of one party or another. That item was not resolved in the Korean War. The North North Korean army was moving into South Korea in order to repatriate the entire peninsula. North Korea the North Korean leadership believed that South Korea should be that it should be one Korea. South Korea didn't feel that way. And we have the Korean War. At the end of World War II, a lot of the world was broken up between the, you know, really two sides of the allies. You have the democratic West, and then you have the Soviet bloc of influence. Korea was one of those places. You know, we talked we've talked about Berlin and how that was split right down the middle. And, and there's areas all around the world that went one direction or the other. Korea was one that was split right down the 38th parallel. North of the 38th parallel would be under, um, would be under Soviet influence, we'll call. Um, and then South was, was more of a United States and eventually the United Nations influence. So it's just the recipe for a hotspot. When you're talking about, you know, I heard something the other day talking about people throughout history would recognize that the United States and the Soviet Union should have gone to war or would have expected it. Because when allies win a conflict, the allies on the winning side are now the strongest powers. And it's natural for those then to clash at some point. So throughout the Cold War, there were hotspots all over the world right away, considering World War II ended in 1945 for the Korean War to kick off in 1950. That is very fresh right away conflict erupts on the Korean Peninsula. So in June of 1950, North Korean troops move into South Korea, prompting the beginning of the Korean War and a United Nations Nations response, of which the United States plays a major role. By the next month, American troops are on the peninsula um, working to beat back the North Korean troops. Now, the, the goals, the strategy, the means would change throughout this conflict. It's, it's messy. There would be arguments to just push the North Koreans back across the 38th parallel. And then there would be arguments to overthrow the entire North Korean regime. 
But remember, we're not just talking about North Korea. When I say North Korea, you need to have in the back of your mind China, communist China, and the Soviet Union. So it wasn't as there wasn't as clear a line in some other conflicts during the Cold War. This is a country that's on the Chinese border. And by October of 1950, just a few months into the conflict, China is committing troops to the battle on behalf of the North Korean forces. So throughout this conflict, there's this constant tension of this thing escalating into a massive, massive war. So it makes things a little bit different. And there's some back and forth. What are the U.S. object? What are the U.N. and United States objectives going to be? And for a few years, there's a lot of back and forth. Um, there's American and United Nations advances, and then we get beat back. And then we advance again, and we loop around to the side. But then by about July of 1951, so about a year into this fighting, really it starts to lock down. And there's still going to be combat for another two years, very, very deadly combat for another two years. But starting by about summer of 1951, you don't have a lot of major advances one way or the other. You tend to see more small-scale small scale strategic victories, but major, major tactical battles. So in November of 1951, so we are a little bit into what I would call the stalemate period of the Korean War. Again, still major combat to be had, and the belligerents on the ground don't know that we've reached a stalemate. We can say that now, but soldiers like Private Knight certainly didn't know that in November of 1951, he was now involved in a stalemate. Something that makes the stalemate, or really the whole conflict interesting, is that the North Korean forces were taking their cues from two advising countries. Those advising countries are China and the Soviet Union. That's where they're getting training equipment, material, and in some cases with China, uh, men to fight. And these countries view warfare differently, have different strategies and tactics than you might see from the United States or many of the countries that make up the United Nations militaries. One of the major ones is going to be, in the roughest terms possible, a value on the human life. You would see on the Eastern Front during World War II, which was the battles between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, the mass amount of bodies that the Soviets would throw at German units was overwhelming. They would over, they could overrun German positions simply by being willing to sacrifice as many people as they needed to. And they did time and again. This isn't to diminish the fighting power of the Soviet Union. They were some warriors for sure. And they pushed hard and they fought hard to include their citizens. It wasn't just their military. But the Soviets in World War II, more than any other country, more than any other country in the European theater of operations, I think you can make a debate with Japan. The Soviet Union was very, very willing to sacrifice soldiers in order to take an objective over and over and over again. There's, I mean, keep in mind, there's one thing, if nothing else, the Soviet Union has an advantage over every other country that's fighting in World War II. It's manpower. It's huge. They have so many people. So what happens when the Soviet Union, now communist China, are your advisors to your military? Those are two of the largest countries on earth. Their biggest advantage, one of their biggest advantages is going to be people. They can overwhelm with these massive frontal assaults to where, in a sense, maybe, maybe losing a platoon of soldiers isn't as important or isn't 
viewed as negatively as if that happened to the Canadians that were fighting alongside the Americans here or the United States. So in turn, throughout the Korean War, you would see these large-scale frontal assaults. I wouldn't call them suicide charges that you would see in Japan. It was a little bit different. There were still it was still military charging you. There weren't people um, charging with swords as much as you would randomly see in the Pacific. But there were frontal assaults, and that messes with your mind to see a horde of enemy fighters coming at you. And there's something to be said for that. That that's that if you have unlimited manpower, you can overrun positions with full frontal assaults. You just have to understand you're going to take heavy, heavy losses in the process. The other big difference that we started to see that the United States was experiencing in the Korean War that we hadn't really seen yet was the integration of a creeping barrage and an infantry assault. So this is something that came into play during the First World War. For a while in World War I, the infantry and the artillery weren't talking. They were almost fighting two separate wars. And the artillery would have their objectives and they'd shell them day and night and turn it on, turn it off. And then randomly the infantry would go over the top and assault an objective and, and run into no man's land mines and artillery and machine guns and for years, right? And it's a bit of an exaggeration, but there was something that came out of this pretty early on in the conflict. Of course, the reason it came out is because of the massive casualties sustained on all sides. But this idea came out that what if we could, we could drop artillery rounds in front of our troops so they can get out and walk behind it. Because one of the issues that was happening in World War I is this artillery barrage would happen for 5, 6, 12 hours, and then it would stop. Let's say 10 o'clock in the morning, it stops. And then at 11 o'clock, the infantry go over the top. Well, the enemy fighters that just maybe were shelled for six hours, they've now had an hour to get ready. They're out of their foxholes. They've cleaned up. They've removed their dead and wounded. They've resupplied. They've dug in. They're ready for the fight. So what good was that artillery barrage? Is there a way to make it more efficient? There was. The way to make it more efficient was something called a creeping barrage, but it required very good communication. Because if you get it wrong, you're all of a sudden shelling your own troops in the open. What a creeping barrage is, think of it like a curtain moving across the battlefield in front of your troops. It's getting closer and closer to the enemy lines. And then at the last minute, which is a relative term, it might have been 10 minutes, it might have been five minutes. Sometimes it could have been a lot less than that. The artillery stops. The enemy fighters, ideally, with no time to get up and out of their foxholes or man their positions or clean up any mess that's been made or redig fighting positions, have the enemy infantry right on top of them. Because the nature of the creeping barrage, it's hitting you until the last minute you poke your head up, bam, enemy fighter right in front of you. It's incredibly challenging, incredibly complex to do. Because again, remember, you have your troops out there in the open, so you have to keep this barrage far enough in front of them to where you're not killing your own guys. This was used in World War I. This was used in World War II. And it's used in Korea, but where it's used differently is that the Chinese and the North Koreans were infamous for running this running their soldiers almost through the barrage so while we would try to wait for that barrage to lift and then the infantry would jump up and charge or assault through an objective the chinese and north koreans didn't really wait they would still storm an objective while it was under artillery mortar fire now to their credit if you want to catch somebody off guard if there's artillery rounds hitting their position, they're not expecting an infantry assault right then. 
the other hand, you're going to kill a lot of your own troops if you send them into your own artillery barrage. That is the type of situation that Private First Class Noah Knight found himself in in November of 1951. His unit was under a heavy artillery mortar barrage and he was wounded. But there's no time to get treated, no time to fix things because as the artillery barrage is lifting, he finds that he's almost overrun by enemy soldiers. So doesn't matter that he's wounded, he's up and fighting right away. He's got a rifle, he's repelling the enemy, he's bouncing from position to position to get the best vantage point and just is firing into this mass of enemy soldiers charging this position. He keeps him at bay, kind of repels this first wave of the attack, but notices that there's a squad of enemy fighters trying to maneuver through a gap in the line to kind of infiltrate through the position. This is going to, he's going to be outnumbered 8 to 10 to 1, but without hesitation, remember, wounded, without hesitation, charges, kills or wounds all of the enemy fighters, and they disappear or retreat. As the fight continues, he's still firing into this massive horde of enemy fighters moving on their position. Eventually, he runs out of ammunition, and as he runs out of ammunition, notices three soldiers, three enemy soldiers, moving up to breach the wire. Now, the reason this is a concern is there's going to be defensive positions anywhere on their perimeter. And the idea of a defensive position is that at least, if nothing else, it slows the enemy down. So if you just have one, there's examples in World War II where there's one strand of barbed wire and it, it just slows the enemy enough to where you can get some shots and knock them down. Those types of defenses, that's all they have to do sometimes is slow the enemy a little bit. If they're not there and the enemy can charge through, you're dead. What Knight notices is three men trying to blow a hole in their defenses. It's just going to be barbed wire and, and things like that. But he sees three with explosive charges moving up into position to open this breach, which would likely, which in turn would give the rest of the enemy fighters an opportunity to run through that now breached wire and overrun the American position. Again, out of ammunition, Private First Class Noah Knight charges the three enemy fighters, disabling two of them with the butt of his rifle before the charge goes off prematurely. That explosion kills the three enemy fighters, but mortally wounds Knight. Shortly thereafter, at the age of 22, Private First Class Noah Knight would die of his wounds on November 24th, 1951. But for his brave actions of charging forward with no ammunition and doing everything he could, sacrificing his life to stop the enemy from breaching that wire, Knight would be awarded the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.